0: Hi, everyone. I'm in the process of updating my How to Talk to Your Kids About Sex course. And as a part of this process, I'm going to be hosting a live, interactive five-session webinar series. During the webinar, I will take parents through the entirety of the course and take their questions along the way. My goal during the seminar series is to teach parents how they can become wise and loving mentors to their children and how they can help their children develop a strong sense of sexual integrity. What I mean by integrity or sexual integrity is the ability to receive the gift of the body, of sexuality, of pleasure, in a way that aligns with their highest values. The webinar sessions will be held on Saturdays at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. Each session will last two to three hours, hopefully closer to two, but sometimes with questions it goes a little longer. The cost to participate is $295 per household, and if you're not able to attend every session, it's no problem because you get sent the recording so you can listen after the fact. The recording, of course, is also helpful for just reviewing concepts and reviewing ideas. The first session of the webinar will be on February 18th. Uh, The tickets are going quickly. We're limiting the number to 40 households or 40 couples, so... Jump on that link in the show notes and reserve your spot today. Thanks and hope to see you there.
1: Jennifer, thank you for coming on the Get Your Merge On podcast today.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having me, Dan.
1: Great. So I want to hear about a time when you felt your your values were different than other people around you.
0: My whole life, but... (laughs) (laughs) Of course. (laughs) But... uh... But, uh, like uh-huh. sexual values, right exactly uh, well, there were a lot of those times but um but I think that when I started grad school, I had several colleagues and friends who none of whom were Latter day saints, uh, which mm-hmm. I am, and I was twenty nine years old and about to get married, and so I was just telling them because what they we would speak pretty openly about things. And I was just telling them that John and I were virgins, that we had waited to get married, uh, to, to, to have sex. Uh, uh-huh. We were married. And they were like, wait, what? Are you kidding me right now? <laughs> uh-huh. and, um, and so I said, no, you know, I'm not kidding. You know, That's just something that we've been deliberate about. And I just explained for me, like, it's not a rejection of sex. In fact, it's, I think, because we both value it and symbolically really value it. And so we look forward to kind of symbolically a real shift, like that our names will change, that we will move in together, that we'll begin a fully sexual relationship, and that those are signifiers of a of a meaningful shift in how we're in relationship to each other. So I was just giving my, my perspective of the deliberateness in it and why it mattered uh-huh. to us. But what was kind of funny is that they were all like, I wish I'd done that. Like, that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> of course, it's one thing to say, I wish I'd done it. It's another thing to actually believe that or want to do it that way. But it was a moment of of at least sharing how I thought about it differently than other people that I respected. And I understood their different life experiences and choices. But yeah, that was certainly a moment.
1: That's good. It's really important to stand up for our values, mm-hmm. especially in the f- when others disagree with us. And that's not easy to do.
0: Yeah, at least be honest about why you choose as you do. I think Uh similar was a moment in my training to become a counselor, similar maybe a year before this. And we were, as normal, we would talk about cases. We would bring our cases who we were working with. And somebody was working with a religious person who was 21 and was still a virgin and had chosen deliberately to not have sex. So the supervisor said, well, she's clearly sexually repressed. And just making a blanket statement, because she doesn't adhere to my liberal sexual values, therefore she's repressed. So, you know, I just stood up for this client and said, she wasn't my client, but I just, uh-huh. I, just "I just don't think that's fair. I mean, she could be repressed. That may be true. Mm-hmm. But it could also be that she has a belief and she's living it deliberately. So it's, like, it's not necessarily fair to say my values are the right ones. And if someone else doesn't conform to them, they're pathological.
1: Mm-hmm. So a lot of our beliefs, uh, like that woman, that 21-year-old, I don't know her, but she could have made a choice because others told her, this That's is what right. you need to do. And we just kind of go along with that. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a component to us where we really want others to tell us what's okay and not okay in yes, our relationships. Definitely. And we, we desperately want someone like, what does this, you know, what does the scripture say? Right. <laughs> what does my pastor or the prophet say? We want people to tell us what's okay and not okay. Absolutely. And they're, when it's not very clear, they kind of start seeking for things, probably in the wrong place. Yes. Or something. Why, why do we do that?
0: Well, human beings don't really have a choice but to do it. I'm I'm working on a book, and I've written a couple chapters on this developmental path that we go through Mm -hmm. in our moral development, our ego development, our sexual development. But when we are young, our first goal, well, maybe the word that would capture that very first stage is that we're impulsive. Mm -hmm. So we are sensation-driven. We're egocentric. Not that we are Bad, right? But that we only know the world through how it impacts us. And we haven't learned yet to inhibit our impulses. Mm -hmm. Some people never grow out of that impulsive stage, right? Uh Many reasons. But in the inhibit stage, we get socialized. And it's a very, very important stage. That is, we start to learn and take on the mores and ethics of the groups we belong to and whatever Mm -hmm. religious a community that is whatever society that is whatever the specifics are of our family we can't yet think for ourselves we are thinking by inheriting the the organizing beliefs of the people we belong to mm-hmm. and so you may think oh this is my belief right and many 21 year olds may say this is my belief when in fact it's an inherited one right mm-hmm. because the soonest people can grow into what Robert Keegan calls the self-authoring stage, which comes mm-hmm. after the social stage, the soonest you can move into that, it would be like late adolescence, early 20s. So, but, but to go back to this second stage is that you're busy taking on what other people think, and you're busy trying to belong to others and to keep others happy with you. And again, most people don't grow out of that stage. Mm -hmm. Most of us have inherited ideas, but we haven't moved into a position of thinking critically about those ideas and determining if they are our values or just Mm -hmm. our inherited ones. Because we like approval so much or we're afraid to think for ourselves or afraid of the invalidation that may happen, that we often conform more than self-define. And so, you know, I did dissertation research on women's sexual agency, looking at Latter-day Saint women and who in the group that I did long interviews with, who were the women who had high levels of agency in marriage, that is that they belonged to their sense of self, to their sexuality, that they transitioned happily into a sexually intimate partnership. What Mm -hmm. I didn't have the language for it then because I, I wasn't, I hadn't learned many of these ways of thinking at that Uh time. But what the data showed was that the women who self-authored around their sexual choices, that is, that they were deliberate about, I believe this is important. I claim this idea. I want this in my life. Even if their behaviors were very conservative um, Mm -hmm. in terms of how sexually liberal they were, that if they were their positions and ones they had thought through and claimed for themselves, then they had very high sexual agency. That is to say that they were able to claim their sexuality and to feel good about it and to be able to partner in marriage, even if their behaviors were more conservative by a more you know, post-sexual revolution perspective. And, mm-hmm. and that was really interesting to me that that self-authoring piece was really the critical variable.
1: Wow, mm-hmm. that's great! And this sets us up for a great bo- backdrop to what we want to talk about today, which mm-hmm. is masturbation. Mm-hmm. Something I get tons of questions about. Mm-hmm.
0: It's, only cause I, question... it's only because I—it's only because I like you, Dan—that I said yes to. This.
1: <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> not,
0: not always an easy topic, but anyway, <laughs> no, it's not an
1: easy topic, but I think it needs to be addressed. And and uh, but the biggest question people ask is, is it okay? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As if they're asking me for permission. Mm or, or yeah. for whatever. Is that more that second stage where they're really more approval-seeking yeah, conformity? Even. Yes, I
0: mean. or the first stage, meaning if people are still struggling with their impulses and they're struggling to regulate their sexuality or they feel out of control around sexuality, there can often be this, yeah, is it okay to be indulgent or do I have to inhibit? They may well be in stage one or stage two where they haven't yet gotten a hold of their sexuality and or they're looking to others to tell them that a behavior is okay or not okay yeah Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: gotcha so uh maybe a more self-authoring which we'll get into a moment Mm -hmm. would be for them to really uh, really ask themselves right right, making
0: determinations about what's the impact of this behavior and what do i believe around it and what is. What is it that I can, with integrity, choose or not choose? It's not so externally driven, the authority of it, but a deeper, honest, internal authority around our sexual choices.
1: So in our conservative Christian culture, uh, there seems to be a lot of anxiety around sex. Mm -hmm. And there's even more anxiety about masturbation specifically. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to any of the historical context of masturbation in general?
0: Yeah, I don't know if I'm really... A great expert on the historical context, but certainly you know in the Victorian era, there was a lot of anxiety around sexuality, and um it may have been more puritanical than victorian actually but but nonetheless, a lot of anxiety about sexuality as something that will corrupt your soul, that will take you away from God, that keeps you from this sort of stringent, noble stoic life um, mm-hmm. and so there were understand there were different apparatuses and things one could buy to like keep you from being able to touch your genitals at night. And the idea that it would give you acne or that fur would grow on your hands or all kinds of hair, I guess, mm-hmm. but, but crazy ideas like this to kind of scare people away from their sexuality. And mm-hmm. I think I definitely think that there's just been a often a cultural fear of pleasure and maybe the eroticism that's a part of sexuality. And so maybe as an exaggeration of the desire to help our children learn to inhibit and to be socialized, we've often been highly anxious and highly shaming even around self-exploration sex, and, and masturbation.
1: Are there periods of time when that was, I guess, there's more shame around Self-exploration in others, like pre-Victorian era, yeah, pre-Puritanical. Yeah.
0: Well, it's kind of interesting in the Victorian time, but but that it helps fertility to bring oneself to orgasm for a woman to do that, that you know, that it was a part of her mental health, even so there's been different cultures and so on that have thought of it as acceptable and okay. In a comical way during the Victorian period, there was actually the idea that hysteria was driven by women not having orgasms. Now, they didn't think of women as sexual. During the time, or at least in certain circles, they didn't. And so the idea was like a woman could be manipulated to a polypropism, I think they called it, which would stimulate her uterus and keep her from having anxious symptoms, depressive symptoms, you know, having sexual feelings, which was considered aberrant for a woman to have. <laughs> and so honestly, they would go to these Victorian doctors who would manipulate these women to orgasm. But they didn't link it to sexuality. They linked it to a kind of a mental health issue. Okay. So, you know. Very uh,
1: popular doctors. Yes,
0: exactly. <laughs> and it's a kind of a comical line. I think Rachel <laughs> Mame said something like, these women ne- neither died nor fully recovered from their condition, but they continued <laughs> to get regular treatments. Yeah. So anyway. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, there's been the range of responses to it, but mm-hmm. uh, especially in conservative cultures, a lot of Fear, and I think specifically the idea that pleasure is antithetical to spiritual. And Mm. so if your pleasure serves someone else, i.e. a spouse, well, then maybe it can be acceptable. But if it only serves you, then it's suspect. It's dangerous. That's often the idea. Mm -hmm.
1: Gotcha. Uh, So uh, if you grew up in a home Mm. where there was a lot of shame around sexuality or masturbation, Mm. How do you coach individuals from that stance of sexual mm-hmm. shame?
0: So, you know, just, just going back to the stages idea for a moment, if one grows up in a very hostile, harsh or shaming environment, it actually inhibits people from integrating their sexuality or moving into a deeper self-trust and mm-hmm. a deeper self-control in the best sense of the word. So, for example, if somebody grows up in an environment that's chaotic or super authoritarian, that people will actually struggle to not either be inhibited to manage the threat to themselves or indulgent. They will sort of vacillate between the two. Mm -hmm. And so or that one can be very shaming about, say, masturbation and actually drive people to do it more.
1: It's like you can't have the brownies. Yeah,
0: right. Exactly. So sometimes I talk about about Uh this with respect to food, that any kind of pleasure like eating or sexuality really demands that we learn how to integrate it in a way that creates goodness in our lives. But if there's too much shaming of the pleasure, it interferes. So I sometimes give the example of like around food compulsions, like if someone is shaming about, oh, you know, you shouldn't eat sugar, you shouldn't like the sweets, you you know, you're going to get fat or whatever, like a, a shaming narrative like that, it will drive people into extremes, either that they will repress it or, you know, you know, have an eating disorder of repression or an eating disorder of indulgence like bulimia. And so it's the shaming that undermines the ability to sort out who am I and what's good for me and what creates more goodness in my life. So sometimes you can teach self-control around sexuality, including masturbation, in a way that's not shaming, not diminishing, not fear-based, and help somebody to learn to control sexual impulses without feeling that they are evil, degenerate, or disgusting for having sexual feelings.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: so when people get a lot of shame around it, Especially in that stage two, one of our primary desires is to belong and to feel worthy and to feel that we are good enough for the people around us. Mm -hmm. If one feels like my sexual feelings interfere with me being good enough, you know, pure, Mm -hmm. desirable, an adequate man, right? A pure woman, whatever it is. Well, then there's so much fear linked to sexuality that it makes it very difficult to claim it as something meaningful and valuable in your life. So if someone is struggling with sexuality because they've just been given so much fear around it, um, my general response is to help them start to at least reflect on the ideas that they have about their sexuality and what it is that they are so afraid of. Mm -hmm. What is it that they reject about their sexuality? What scares them about it? Who have they been around their sexuality, right? And to better understand where they've learned perhaps to be afraid of it or how they've struggled to regulate themselves around it. And I try to help them to move from an external idea of I shouldn't, I can't, I'm bad, this sort of external idea to move to a deeper self-definition what do you desire? I had a client, for example, who was just compulsively looking at porn all the mm-hmm. time because he was always in this struggle. He would sort of white knuckle it for months and then he'd go into these sort of indulgent four hour a day type things. And, and mm-hmm. it was always in this, I'm being a good boy and then screw it. I'm going to do what I want. But it was all external. And he had gone to program after program, but it was all kind of in this external idea. And Mm -hmm. so my work with him was to help him start to claim his life. Like, what did he really want his legacy to be sexually? Who did he want to be in the world? What is a position or set of choices around porn that he could live with and feel at peace with? And trying to get him to take himself more seriously Mm -hmm. and to live more in line with his own honest positions and view. And just to help him become more self conscious or self aware of the fact that he was turning this over to others and then rebelling against it rather than Mm -hmm. owning the life and authoring the life that he was living. And it Mm -hmm. was surprising, you know, this is often the case, is when people make that shift, they no longer have to comply or rebel. They start Mm -hmm. to take themselves more seriously and actually it becomes easier to control their choices. Because they're trying to live up to their higher selves, to the person they desire to be, to the person they respect.
1: Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So it's more value-driven, like internal yes. values, yes. my values, and self-definition. My life. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. Good. Good. Are there some cases where you've seen where people use masturbation as a way to strengthen their relationship with their spouse, or using it for good? Because I think a worthy mm-hmm. goal is using our sexuality for goodness.
0: Yeah. So it's a, it's an interesting way to say it and I it's not quite the way I'd say it but what I would say is that I think what can be a problematic idea is just the idea that to touch our own genitals is inherently a problem or to give ourselves pleasure is inherently a problem. I just mm-hmm. don't see it as that simple. Mm-hmm. Um and There are people that have taken that very behavioral idea around sexuality and then said, well, you have to touch me because I'm not allowed to. And how else am I going to fulfill my needs? Right. So that Mm -hmm. is that they can actually do something that's really quite indecent in the name of trying to be good. Does that make sense? Like you have to touch me because Mm -hmm. what else am I going to do? And mm-hmm. even though I know you hate to be here, well, this is what we have to do because it's somehow wrong for me to touch myself. Mm-hmm. And it's not that I think, oh, OK, you should just touch yourself and then everything will be better. It's more that that it's too simple of a picture that see, because I think if we're afraid of our own bodies or we think I can't touch my own body or I can't mm-hmm. acknowledge the sensual pleasure that's a part of it that actually interferes with our ability to integrate our sexuality.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Does that make sense? So Yeah, right. And so it's sort of taking that and, and not getting it so supercharged in marriage. Mm-hmm. Then it might be thinking about if I want a good, loving relationship with my spouse, right? And I don't want to be a burden or do I want to um, be underdeveloped? Like, well... What's my relationship to my own body? What's my relationship to my sexuality? What's my relationship to pleasure? You know, it's like answering those larger questions. It might Mm -hmm. mean sometimes you touch yourself, right? The bigger goal is being at peace with yourself and your sexuality, coming to a kind of self acceptance and using your sexuality for good in the marriage Mm -hmm. and not using these really limited ideas about. A behavior is good or bad without understanding the context and what is actually happening. Like some people are like, oh, well, you know, missionary position is the righteous position for sex. Like that's just ridiculous. Okay. Because lots of evil things happen in missionary position, right? And lots, yes. and lots of good. And so it's not the position of the body or whose hand is where or mouth is where. It's like what is actually being created in this couple. And is this an expansive and loving meaning, or is this something that is using and taking advantage, whether it's through having sexual behavior or not having it? Mm
1: -hmm. So I can see how someone could use this behavior of masturbation, for instance, and using it in a way that is not helpful for the marriage.
0: Right. For sure. Right. Mm -hmm. And and also that that they could, you know, I mean, yeah, you know, (laughs) there have been times where, you know, in the past where... (laughs) My husband would wake up the next morning and I'd say, like, you had sex with me last night and it was amazing. (laughs) Uh Okay, In the sense that what I was saying was he was dead asleep and I didn't feel like it was good to wake him up. And so, you know, I'm being transparent and honest that in my mind he was with Uh me
1: Uh and
0: there's like no harm, no foul. It's not is nothing, you know, that the marriage is open Uh and knowable. There's nothing to manage in terms of ego.
1: Mm -hmm. And
0: that it was like the most right thing to do.
1: But there are also others that would probably take it to the dark, put it in the secret. I don't want my spouse to find out. Yes. I'm doing this. And that's. Yes. Well, in the name of I'm entitled to my own pleasure or whatever it is. Yeah, Uh
0: exactly. And then, like, why are you not telling it? Is it just that you can't actually back up what you're doing? Is Uh it that you can't handle your spouse's invalidation even though you can back up what you've chosen? So it's like, why is it a secret? What's happening Mm -hmm. in the marriage that that there's difficulty with honesty and and transparency? And so it's really looking at what is the way that we relate to sexuality? What does it expose about who we are as a couple? And that's a very important question where sometimes it's easy to get into the specific behaviors as a way to distract from the larger question of who we are. Yes.
1: Yeah. Makes sense. Okay. You mentioned these women that you interviewed for your, uh, your PhD, Mm -hmm. your, your thesis and those that were Mm self-defining. And you also noticed something that those that I think you've mentioned before, those that were more prepared sexually for marriage, Many of them had learned mm-hmm. to pleasure and, mm-hmm. and had masturbated. Can you That's talk right. on that and how that? Well, that is was in integration. Fact, that was in uh-huh. fact
0: true, and you know, I didn't have such a large study that I can say I, I personally saw in my data that this is a universal or that this necessarily is true. But I have read other research that showed that women who had masturbated in adolescence were, as a group, more self-confident. Now. Was it because they were more self-confident that they let themselves masturbate? Or was it that somehow masturbating created more confidence in them or more peace with their own bodies? But in my research, it was true that the women who had the most agency in marriage, that is they were accepting of their sexuality, they felt excited about their sexuality, and were the most conservative in their choices, all happened to... Discover their sexuality in their childhood or adolescence, feel good about the pleasure that their body was capable of. Mm-hmm. And kind of in this self-acceptance, were more able to be deliberate in their decision making. Some of the women I interviewed, they said, Well, I first discovered my capacity for pleasure when I sat on a doll when I was eight years old, but I felt ashamed, right? And mm-hmm. I thought what I had done was dirty. And, and they struggled more because it was just the whole thing of sexuality was a problem. The women who saw it as an exciting and a good thing, like they actually saw it as something to look forward to and something to kind of safeguard, but not because it was bad, but because it was a great thing. It was something they were happy about. And that was a very important variable in being able to feel like a sexual being legitimately. They just naturally let themselves be somebody who was sexual and could have pleasure. They they could see themselves as worthy of it right away, I think that's really critical is this that I am deserving of pleasure, right, but I think it's also that they understood on some level prior to marriage what they were going for, like it wasn't like, okay, my spouse needs to bring me this experience, and he's supposed to be the one that makes my sexuality legitimate. That was a burden that other women who had had low agency in marriage they did have that belief and it didn't go well they they weren't able to step readily into their sexuality they felt broken they felt innate. they felt on stage they that know their spouse was failing miserably at this because he had a job that wasn't really his job <laughs> oh, right uh-huh. yeah and so it was much more difficult often for women who saw it as something that they couldn't legitimately own in themselves until a man made it legitimate right
1: yeah. Mm-hmm. Great. Great. Mm-hmm. Speaking of legitimate and making it legitimate, um, I do hear this time to time from people. They're in a marriage where, for whatever reason, they do want to masturbate mm-hmm. I, for various reasons. It could be because sexual frequency is really low. Mm-hmm. They're a sexual being mm-hmm. and they're being celibate against their will. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> whatever. Right? Yeah. And so they, they do feel this like, Desire to for release or whatever it might be, yeah. Yet their spouse feels very strongly against it. Like mm-hmm. this is you know infidelity. It's mm-hmm. back to that frame yes. you put earlier.
0: Yeah. Like, how
1: do how do you counsel couples in those situations?
0: Well, what I would say is, okay, your spouse is saying I can't validate you doing it, right? Um, And she or he is trying to say you, therefore, shouldn't do it because if you're a good partner, I should be comfortable. Now, that's hard because most of us in marriage want our spouse to feel good about our choices. We want them to feel good about who we are. Mm -hmm. But what I would say to somebody in that situation is, okay, why do you think your spouse is saying it? And what is their motivation? Mm -hmm. And do you agree with their position or not? Mm -hmm. meaning who are you relative to this? That's different than I need to prove to my spouse that my position is legitimate, but I need to be clear in myself that I can stand by my position. Mm -hmm. And so it's helping the person in question use the invalidation to clear their own mind more. Mm -hmm. If we only did in marriage what made our spouse comfortable, the marriage would never grow. Now, I don't right. mean you should just flippantly be like, I'm doing whatever I want. I don't care, uh, right? Uh-uh. You do want to understand why a spouse has a negative reaction to something and consider it honestly and use their perspective to refine and get clear on your own. But mm-hmm. it ultimately means a marriage that grows is that you're willing to own your position, even if it's against what your spouse wishes were your position.
1: And that's hard to do.
0: Definitely. percent. A thousand percent. Especially because a lot of us have learned the idea that if you love me, you will make me comfortable. Yes. And a lot of women say that to men, like you're supposedly the one that's stronger than me, or you're supposedly the one who's supposed to make me feel good. So Mm -hmm. therefore never make me uncomfortable. And Mm -hmm. that's just not what a marriage of equals is. I mean, my job is not to control you. It's to control me. I may say, if I don't like something, I may say, I can't, you know, I can't validate that or feel good about it. And it might even shape your choices relative to mm-hmm. your spouse. But the tricky thing in marriage is learning to control yourself and live in line with what you believe is good, not control the other. So as, yes. as you know, sometimes I say weak people control others, strong people control themselves and, um but it it sucks to be strong sometimes. it's hard, it's hard. <laughs> it <does. laughs> it's hard to just control ourselves. We want to convince our spouse that our position is legit, you know, and mm-hmm. get them to see it the same way rather than mm-hmm. take deeper responsibility for ourselves in the marriage
1: when you talk about these things, I think about our founding fathers trying to create a constitution, yeah, they just declared independence from England, yeah, they're they're in, 13 colonies and they debated yeah constantly yeah. about how it should be. But they came together. That's right. They held enough room for everyone to bring yeah. there. And it was an ugly process.
0: Yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> it
1: was really uncomfortable, but in the end they were able to create a more perfect union as a result.
0: That's right. And, and so I think it was in the book Crucial Conversations. I remember. I, I think, like that book. Yeah, it's a good book. It's a good uh-huh. book. Yeah, but it's like kind of like you—you want to make sure that the best information is getting on the table, even if it's invalidating information. You want to bring the best in your perspective to that, even if it means conflict. It, it, it's going to be in conflict. There's nothing wrong with yes. conflict. Now, contention or contempt—that's a problem. Right. meaning there's hostility in it there's uh-huh. there's you know a desire to degrade the other person but conflict is a way of getting at the best idea and i've mm-hmm. sometimes said to people well then the two of you as parents should duke it out until you can have a shared position with your child rather than live in that split and make your child prove their loyalties one way or the other so mm-hmm. it's hard but you know i hate I hate having to own where my spouse is right, <laughs> because it uh, yes. means I have to grow and I need to accommodate more and I need to grow mm-hmm. out of my own, you know, pet view um, mm-hmm. into a wiser view. But seldom is it just that he's right and I'm wrong. There's often truth in both both positions, and to and to get a hold of that helps you both grow to a more mature position. Mm-hmm.
1: I like that very much. Mm-hmm. Okay, another question I get often from users of the Intimately Us app, usually, mm-hmm. is, is this a slippery slope to engage in masturbation? Will it lead to other unhealthy sexual behaviors? Or, um, it's a cultural assumption, I think, that anyone who masturbates must be fantasizing about other people while mm-hmm. in the act. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Therefore, it's sinful to do. Are they committing adultery in their hearts anytime mm-hmm. they touch themselves and so on and
0: so mm-hmm, on? Mm-hmm. Well, again, it it really just goes back to what is it about? I mean, the slippery slope in life is self-deception, lying to ourselves, telling ourselves stories about who we are and how great we are or whatever. Well, that's Mm -hmm. a slippery slope because the more you step into self-deception, the more obscured you are about what's up and down and what's true. And then it can make it easy to deceive yourself at a deeper level. You see people do this. They step into self-deception and then they go in further and further and further because they have to keep justifying themselves. That's the slippery slope. It isn't, in my view, sexuality or pleasure. Mm -hmm. It depends on what is the meaning. Is it based in a truthful, honest position or is it in a self-deceived position? So now somebody can touch themselves and think about their spouse, like in my story right mm-hmm. uh, or you can think about someone else okay well there are very different meanings and impacts on the marriage and what's actually happening or why is one doing that is it because one's spouse is gone but you're thinking about them while they're out of town or you know are you trying to create something that you want to hide from your spouse well it's going to have a very different impact so again for me it's not are your hands ever on your genitals or do you ever have pleasure but what are you actually doing? How honestly are you living? How truthfully mm-hmm. do you live? And what is what is the larger impact of that choice?
1: I like that. And I think one of my favorite quotes from you is, if the devil had a playground, it's not mm-hmm. sex. Mm-hmm. It's that self-deception. Right. It's, it's the lying to ourselves. Yes. And it's the self-justification for things that we That's, know aren't quite right, but yeah. we do anyway.
0: Yes. And sex is supercharged in that it's very connected to our core selves.
1: Mm -hmm. It's
0: the thing that's probably hardest to integrate because it's a weird part of being human. It's Mm -hmm. easy to not want to share ourselves in this way, but to judge our spouse, you know, um, because of our anxiety. So it is, in fact, a more difficult area to make good decisions and live with deep integrity. But Mm -hmm. it's not the sexuality per se, it's, again, it's the difficulty with staying honest with ourselves around our humanity and around our relationships with one another. But honesty always leads the way around this and living truthfully around your sexuality, uh, with yourself at least, will help you not move into destructive behaviors. Okay,
1: great. Mm -hmm. All right, Jennifer, I've always wanted to ask you this next question. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> so let's say you're someone that's really worked through this. They're self-defining. They're living with more integrity in relationship to their sexuality. And they're ready to take their sex life to the next level. What would be your one or two black belt hmm. sex tips to take their sex life to, to the next level?
0: Oh, maybe... Maybe... Exposing to your spouse something about your erotic mind that you've maybe been afraid to talk to them about because Mm -hmm. you feel bashful or, you know, or tell them something that you would like to do that you've been afraid of the invalidation. It doesn't mean that your spouse will be like, fantastic. I mean, they may. They may be like, uh-huh. fantastic.
1: <laughs> well, there's a reason why you're not doing it now. Right. So exactly. There's probably...
0: exactly. It's like uh-huh. some of the difficulty with intimacy. It's some of the difficulty yes. with keeping the marriage knowable and honest. But mm-hmm. it, it does two things. It, it brings, you know, the, the best sexual relationships, in my opinion, are able to hold the two things that human beings want. We want safety or security. We want to belong. And we mm-hmm. want novelty and freedom. And a lot of marriages err in one direction or the other. That is, that mm-hmm. it's all about safety and there's no freedom or novelty. The sex is boring. It's like it's Tuesday. It's always the same position, right? Or it errs too much in the area of freedom. Like this, the shackles of this marriage are destroying my sexual energy. And so they actually like destroy the foundation of the marriage in the attempt to have novelty. And so in the best marriages, there's this ability to find this like I'm committed, but we, we will bring novelty about who we are. We'll keep growing as a partnership, right, that we keep that we value this partnership enough to keep it full of life and truth and newness. Now, not in a way that undermines the couple, but just even to know aspects of yourself. That you didn't let yourself know before, or you hadn't yet developed, or you hadn't shared with your spouse. I, I tell this story sometimes, but because it was just so that my husband and I were separated for three weeks because of travel schedules. Mm-hmm. But you know, I just decided. You know, a couple weeks in, he called me and he just was really emotionally intimate. He just said some things to me about how grateful he was for the marriage and how much he loved me. And John's a quiet guy, so it wasn't like usual to hear kind of that level. Mm-hmm. It was meaningful. It was very meaningful. It was very intimate. Um, Mm -hmm. He was somewhat sexual in the way he was talking to me too. And so that night I just thought, you know, I'm just going to send him a picture of myself. Now that was scary for me to do because I'd never done it before. I wasn't Mm -hmm. certain that he was going to think that was a good idea. I was also, it was like seeing myself in a different way or being Mm -hmm. with him in a different way. Okay. Well, the short, story of this longer thing of another week of, of amazingness before, uh-huh. before he came home was that it just like opened up a whole different realm between us of seeing myself, experiencing myself with him in a different way, experiencing him in a different way. This was all remote, but you know, he's writing erotic poetry to me. You know, there's like this whole supercharged experience, but why it was supercharged is because we were stepping into a new way of being together. Mm-hmm. We were not just in the you're my husband, what, what are the kids' schedules way of being, but more like you're a man and I'm a woman, and we are showing aspects of ourselves to each other that we haven't before. And it made the marriage feel alive at a much deeper level. It made each of us feel alive at a different level. And so there was tremendous novelty, while still a deep safety of the commitment of the marriage. And I'll give another example. I was teaching the Art of Desire retreat. We were talking a lot about different ways that one can, you know, bring novelty to their marriage. And there's are many women that have never kind of let themselves think like this because uh-huh. they sort of thought, if I'm a good woman, I won't think like this. Right. And so one woman was there and she just an act of great courage while she's sitting there listening to me. She sends her husband a text. Because the plan was that she was going to stay in a hotel room that night on the way home from the retreat and then join up with the family the next day. And she Uh texted her husband and she said, hey, I heard your wife is out of town. She was like, how about get, how about getting a babysitter and and you know meet me at this hotel for you know a rendezvous with you know what she gives a pseudonym for her name or right?
1: uh-huh. candy or right. right. yeah, uh-huh. something like
0: that exactly <laughs> exactly, and so you know she then her husband responded and she she just raised her hand and she said, "I just want to share with you what I've done. It scared me to send this text. this is what I sent, and my husband just responded and said this is the best text I've ever gotten from (laughs) you. Right. So, but it's just super fun because here she's experienced. I mean, here they are together, but they're playing and expanding the eroticism and the aliveness Mm -hmm. and the play between them. So I think Mm -hmm. a lot of times we're afraid of this playfulness and sexuality because like, well, wait, does that mean I want to have an affair or am I tempting my husband into the idea of an affair? If I do this, Mm -hmm. I mean, we do a lot of this moralism to handle our fears, but, that's just not it at all. It's like, you know, eight-year-olds may play cops and robbers, but it's not because they want to be robbers. They're, they're oh. playing with a the dynamic. They're playing with roles and identities. And in sex, this is a wonderful kind of grown-up play. And mm-hmm. it reinforces the, you know, sometimes people think of the sacredness of sex as like just everything's like quiet and, and stodgy. I'm not sure. <laughs>
1: <It's> <laughs> sort of somehow like uh-huh.
0: boring. is makes it spiritual. Rather right. than the sacredness of, you know, me at this deep level that we can enjoy and accept ourselves in this way mm-hmm. with one another, n- mm-hmm. value each other in this deep way. I mean, I think in this story that I told about me and John it was there, was this like deep, deep valuing that was highly sexual, but it was, but it was, it was a deep form of choosing. So it was, it was interesting in how it was both felt so alive and so secure at the same time. And mm-hmm. it's just like a beautiful place to create as a couple.
1: Because I think a lot of couples think it's a trade-off. Yes. I get either the security or I get the novelty. That's and right. I see it in relationships where one spouse is more the security-driven yep. person. The That's right. The novelty-driven person.
0: That's right. Exactly. And when people just resent those differences, right. it creates a stalemate. But mm-hmm. if you can say, look, where can I lean in the direction of my spouse? Like, What is it that? they want. I don't have to give up all my security needs, but I also value that they want for our marriage to be alive. And so mm-hmm. it is how can we grow together? How can we do something that maybe is outside of my comfort zone, but it's not going to undermine us? I think that's just really critical to a thriving marriage.
1: Great. And what's the response from the more the novelty speaking spouse mm-hmm. in that same
0: What would be their response if they have a, well, I think it would be to think about, you know, is my spouse's fear legitimate? You know, I'm working with a couple where I think she fears that if he really had his way, he might leave the marriage or he might want so much novelty that it would destroy them. So I think she really kind of can track that and so is in this really conservative response to it. Because Mm -hmm. it's not just her fear of sexuality. It's that she's kind of afraid of, is he really committed? So is that reaction to something that's really about a question of the true safety? Or is it just, I don't want to be uncomfortable? Mm -hmm. And if it's, I don't want to be uncomfortable, well, okay, it's okay. And I mean, I guess i would say it's understandable. But Mm -hmm. making your comfort be the primary driver in marriage, not what's actually making room for two people what's allowing it to grow and be alive. If it's just your comfort, well, it can have, mm-hmm. it can actually do precisely what you're afraid of. It can kill a marriage because it's weighed down too much by fear. Mm-hmm.
1: Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Gotcha. And, uh, I'm so glad we had this discussion because I know a, a particular couple who comes to mind mm. who's in a dynamic like that too. Mm. And- and for her, it, she just wants to be the one that will always initiate. She's mm-hmm. the more security-driven mm-hmm. person in their marriage. And the latest negotiation is, I am going to always be the one initiating so that she has that control. Mm-hmm. I'm going the one that sets the agenda for what positions we do mm-hmm. and what sexual activity goes on so that
0: mm-hmm. you don't
1: surprise me with something I'm uncomfortable with. And
0: Yeah, I, a lot of couples do these kinds of things. And I get it. Mm-hmm. I get it if the person is feeling like... I, if you initiate my mind is so reactive that i don't feel in control anymore yeah the problem is is that when the couple negotiates the i'm the one who's always the actor you're always the one who's acted upon it kind of solidifies the immaturity rather than helping the person get ahead because the goal is how can i hold on to my sense of self and my ability to be a chooser even while knowing what my spouse wants even while allowing them to initiate. I still have mm-hmm. choices. I still get to respond and decide what I desire. Mm-hmm. But if I make it that I have to always be the one in control, it actually keeps the couple from growing into a deeper ability to collaborate and keeps the couple from a freedom that's really essential to good, mm-hmm. thriving sexuality and even thriving relationship You know, outside of the bedroom.
1: And then I know of another couple where she's uh, so afraid of not being good enough.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: She'll try against her, you know, better judgment. She knows she doesn't want to, but she'll give in mm. because she is
0: trying to earn.
1: Yes. Trying to earn mm. the val- and And it doesn't work out. And then she feels like that little girl getting scolded by the parent being told like, this doesn't work out. Like they went on vacation. He really wanted to do something novel. She tried it. She didn't like it. And then he got upset that she didn't like it. So it turned into this big argument mm. over uh, why and she feeling not good enough for him? And,
0: mm. and they slept
1: in separate bedrooms on their vacation. It ruined their vacation.
0: Mm. <laughs> yeah. Well, it just depends a little bit. Like in that story, I, I can imagine it from two different directions, which is mm-hmm you know is it that he's demanding and critical right yeah probably right Uh exactly so is he demanding and critical and if you don't do it my way Uh um you're the insufficient wife because if that's the energy then yeah she's gonna easily get pushed into the dynamic of you've got to prove you know i worked with a couple where he's like my love language is you wearing sexy clothes when we go. And I'm like, that's not a love language. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> he would just kind of come in with these high demands. And then she uh-huh. would be trying to keep him happy with her, but he would never was because mm-hmm. it was like the wrong question. It's like she wasn't going to supply him feeling good about her and good about him. Or is it somebody who's like, look, I need you to be happy with me as I am. And if you're not, then I feel terrible. You know, it's a it, so. Is it that the the spouse is not really asking for a lot, but just the self criticism kind of becomes the primary emotion and feeling? So it depends. I can see it in both ways in in a mm-hmm. couple. You know, in that in that experience.
1: But for whatever their dynamic is, the point is, can you two, as a couple, calm down enough yes. that you can really come together and lay things out? Out of the dark, into the light. Yeah. We look at this together without freaking out. Right. Really talk through these things and be willing to be committed to the truth. Right. To build a more perfect union to yes. build exactly room for two.
0: Exactly. Exactly.
1: Great. Cool. Jennifer, thank you very much for your time and for your wisdom. You're welcome. Will you please tell people your website? I've bought all of your courses. I'm a subscriber to Room for Two. Which people probably don't know about. Would yeah. you tell them sure, sure, about that? Sure, sure, huh? sure.
0: Sure. So my website, first of all, is just my last name, which is finlayson-fife.com. And so on there, you can learn about my online courses. There's a podcast feed called Conversations with Dr. Jennifer, which are just free podcasts like this, conversations like this. And then I have a podcast called Room for Two, which is a subscription-based podcast in which I'm working with couples around emotional and sexual intimacy issues and helping people be able to listen into these anonymous um, conversations on marital issues that are very human, very normal, and kind of getting um, input on how one can move out of some of these stalemates or difficult places. So there's that. And then I have five online courses around self and sexual development. So couples courses, two of them, and then a men's sexuality and women's sexuality course. And these are about helping people integrate their sexuality more and come to more peace with themselves and more ability to create an intimate marriage. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Dan. Hey, everyone. Just a reminder that from now until Valentine's Day, we're offering 20% off of all of my online courses and... You get an additional 10% off if you buy two courses or 15% off of all of them if you buy three or more. If you've been considering purchasing a course, now is the time to do it. We don't offer another site-wide sale like this until Black Friday, so it is a great opportunity to get the courses you've been thinking about getting. Click on the link in the show notes to learn more about the sale.